Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to everybody involved. It's been an unprecedented year as it relates to uh, live spiritual communal music. Uh, it's been absolutely healing for me over the last couple of years as my life has gone through its own progressions, is <clears throat> going on the road and being able to see my people, authentic, creative people uh, creating and, and, and doing original music, coming together in different amalgamations to inspire and to heal dis-ease. And, um, and I've been all over the country doing this uh, driving content. And then all of a sudden, uh, with this, um, pandemic, um, a lot of that, uh, was shuttered. Uh, and it's even remarkable because in Tucson, uh, even <coughs> compadres of mine, I mean, they've played maybe one or two live gigs all year. The universal vibration is incredibly low on top of the, of the already, already cognitive dissonance that exists within our socio-political system. So it's just sort of this perfect combination of insanity, and uh, but yet um, we will come out on the other side of this at some point. And when we do, uh, I believe that uh, one of the things that um, is going to be necessary for civilization is organic, creative music. Now, whether it is um, deemed um, uh, something that is uh, profession that is deemed something that is worthwhile to compensate the artist remains to be seen because somewhere along the line, when the bean counters got involved, um, the people decided, oh, well, you can't quantify music. Uh, it's unquantifiable in its nature. So therefore, it must be free. You must be able to do it for free. And so it's music as a musician's gift to the world. And as long as that attitude persists, um, our job will, will remain difficult. But my next guest is somebody who has been really fighting the good fight well before the pandemic. Uh, his uh, company, Folk Yeah, is uh, determined to um, develop individual um, identities for incredibly authentic creative musicians who need to be heard from and would have been heard from in a different paradigm in our music and cultural history. Um, and so I've been to many of his events and he has continued to curate events during COVID. Um, but yet, um, I, it's really an honor to be able to connect with him to talk about, um, not necessarily the way forward, but, uh, figuring out a new paradigm, uh, with intentions and maybe no expectations. Britt Govea, welcome to the Jake Feinberg hey, Show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to have you, man. You know, I, I just wanted you to talk personally about um, how you've dealt with um, dis-ease this year um, in the sense that my coping mechanism was oftentimes, um, you know, really having a spiritual release during live music. Uh, without that, how have you dealt with disease this year? Has it been a difficult year? Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty difficult and tricky year. Just kind of, uh, you know, at first kind of being blindsided by it in March. Uh, the last show before uh, the uh, the pandemic really took <clears throat> took foot as to you know uh, 
closing down shows and public gatherings was the uh, the uh, Chris and Rich uh, Robinson Black Crows acoustic duo show at the Chapel in SF, which was uh, such a glorious night. And then uh, right before that, uh, uh, another uh, birthday party show for with Robin Hitchcock. So there were two of my favorite shows in a long time. Um, and then right after that, boom, the uh, the obligatory rug was pulled out from everybody. So that was uh, that was tricky simply because, um, you know, it's uh, it was definitely uh, felt like we were holding the bag there, left holding the bag because there was so much obviously in the works and so much already on sale and such. But we just, uh, the worst part is, uh, you know, going into it thinking, oh, it's only going to be a couple of months. Oh, man, uh, going way back, I mean, to like, I mean, it's, it's pretty much like the age that my son is now, like six. Uh, I have memories of, of being like uh, deeply, uh, music deeply resonating with me. And, um, you know, going back to uh, being that age, I think I had, I, uh, you know, I got in trouble um, because uh, I got uh, a record player and I, and I started saving up, you know, serial coupons for records. And, uh, and for a Christmas gift, I got uh, an old Viewmaster projector, and uh, and I remember, you know, probably around the age of eight or so, um, inviting neighborhood friends over and charging them like a quarter or whatnot to come into the, my bedroom and um, turn off all the lights, put the record on, and show these, you know, very primitive projected uh, images from like an old Viewmaster. Um, just because I was so moved by the experience of music and, and, and also the visuals. So uh, eventually some of the other mothers got, got wind of it and came and uh, <laughs> knocked at my door and said, your son, my mom, your son is charging 20 cents for my son to go to his bedroom and show him. Yeah, what is he doing in there? Yeah, the, the liquid liquid light show. What what, what were <laughs> exactly, you? Exactly. What were you? Early, uh, early version of that. I love so, it. I mean, it's been, it's been and, and the, the reason I say that is not as a, as a premonition to what I ended up doing, because I, I, I think that's actually not really the, the point of the story. The point of the story, I think, is just how moved from an early age I was by music that I wanted to, like, present it, share it, not only share it, but present it in a... I wanted to put a frame in it, you know, around it, and uh, and show it in, a, in, a, in, in something that was an experience rather than just, like, playing the record and staring at the wall, you know? Um, so it's always been there um and just got worse i just got i just became more and more hopeless in terms of uh of you know the perpetual dog ear to the to the gramophone um and then i would say the another big change was um i was really into sports and then uh probably around the age of 13 or so you know uh having a neighborhood friend taking me you know around to the field and we're getting stoned and then uh, coming home and then it's like boom you know listening to music once again blowing my mind thus shifting kind of everything more towards like a creative arts uh, infatuation than uh, more of a physical sports infatuation so it goes way back and uh, it's uh, still to this day can um, can hit me at a random moment where I'm just like shit I need to sit down and take this in because this song is just it's just hitting me so hard so uh, what were you like uh, what, what were the what kind of I mean, it's all music to me. Um, I kind of come from that Duke Ellington school, and I feel like in some ways the, um, you know, we've gotten so stratified and, and, and splitting up genres and this is this and this is that. And then, you know, after a while, people don't even, you know, if we, we, if we walk down the street, 
and ask 15 people what their definition of jazz is, we get 15 different definitions. And I just wonder about, like, you know, what was the, what touched your heart uh, about music uh, or what kinds of music? Um, again, we're using labels, but I mean, was it, was the music that first touched, what kind of music? Was it singer song? I mean, you know, folk, yeah, events. It's not, you know, what I'm seeing is a lot of singer song, a lot of songs that are based around song form. But what yeah. was the, what was the, I mean, were you, were you cranking Zeppelin with the light shows or what was really getting you off as a young cat? And then even move, I was a sports fan too, played sports and did baseball on the radio for a long time, but it got a little bit too corporate for me and I kind of drifted away. And, um, yeah. I just wonder about the, 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 the kind of music that really touched your heart early on. Uh, you know, definitely the early singer-songwriter stuff, lyrics have always been uh, something that I've definitely been drawn to, and um, definitely by, uh, you know, a great song can be destroyed by bad lyrics, so, um, <laughs> and vice versa, but uh, so I definitely, uh, I was always drawn to the to a supreme level of lyrics, <laughs> you know, um, in terms of uh, definitely eventually becoming, you know, graduating and falling right into the arms of, of, of Bob Dylan, um, who, uh, who uh, is you know uncontestedly the best songwriter that we're probably ever going to know in our lifetime? Yeah. Uh, in terms of being a dude with a guitar and and, and a voice and uh, so much more now, but all the songs starting out like that. Uh, as a kid, though, I was definitely uh, drawn to this kind of singer songwriter stuff, but also to um, to instrumental music. I'd be like the the soundtrack to shows that like my older brother and my parents watched. Like I remember, you know. Saving up for Rockford Files 45 when I was super young, oh, you know, wow. um, because I just heard, I remember hearing that, you know, uh, I remember, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Like uh, one of the very first uh, records my mom got me, I think it, it wasn't a new record at the time, but it's just uh, something I remember saving up for was uh, uh, Eddie Money, I Love a Rainy Night. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's, it's like kind of the moment of, uh, of the lyrics of, as a kid, you know, and hearing these songs and identifying with it. And then, uh, as we got into the 80s, uh, you know, I, I went to uh, a full-on obsession with uh, with UK music, you know, by the time we got to the mid-80s, I should say. Um, and then eventually came out the other end. So it's it's definitely been all over the map, but definitely starting with a, 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 a singer-songwriter sort of appeal, uh, I think, got me in early, for sure. <laughs> Britt, have you always been somebody who... Um, identifies with the underdog. What I mean by that is like, um, you know, this is kind of what came into my head uh, the last couple of days in, in prepping for this interview is just the idea that like there is, there are not enough people out, not the musicians themselves, but there's just not enough advocacy for musicians in our, in our, in our Western culture today. And I just, yeah. to me, was that something that, when did that come into play? Because I, I don't, I, I, I truly want to figure out and be, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I think it's great that people like Jackson Brown or John Williams, they'll go to Capitol Hill uh, in normal times and try to advocate for musicians' royalties and, you know, uh, intellectual property rights. And I think, but again, it's coming from the musicians themselves. And I don't think that that's the best way to advocate. And I do believe that there's a serious problem as it relates to a musician being seen as a viable profession. I know you're yeah. one of the cats that is cultivating that. And I just wonder, 
Um, have you always been interested in the idea that, um, you know, fighting for the underdog, compensating for the underdog? I don't know if that's the right word, but the idea that just giving, being an advocate for yeah. really creative cats. I mean, can you just talk about your evolution as it relates to how it's built up to folk? Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, that, that definitely goes back, I think, to those mid-'80s roots of uh, kind of being into, like, kind of more un- underground English music. Um, that definitely was the start of putting on shows. Can you explain, <clears throat> the, can you explain that, that early, that, that music, and why, why that resonated and how that led to it? Uh, yeah, I guess I could get pretty deep on that. I mean, but there was definitely, I mean, a lot of the uh, kind of that, <clears throat> that English uh, post-punk early indie stuff of mm-hmm. England was uh was a lot of outsider music basically in terms of the it was it was um it was not mainstream um and it was uh it was written and performed and recorded by musicians that were you know for lack of a better word outsiders um almost like skiffle uh, almost skiffle player like you know yeah pretty much definitely you know um so i always loved those bands and, and it could have been because uh you know i went to um i went to a high school in uh in Bakersfield, and uh, actually the really, really particularly uh, redneck area of Bakersfield, <laughs> uh, Oildale. Oildale, dude, uh, I, my brother is the sport. I can't. My brother's the sports editor of the Bakersfield Californian. Man, it's unbelie- unbelievable. Dude, he I we mean, we went to Oildale. Oildale is went, that's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, so I mean Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, Big all time. right there. Oh, you know, um, the Merle's house, his uh, boxcar was there. who was you know not far from the high school, but it was. So I was one of only you know a handful of kind of, uh, you know, Hispanic kids that loved music and loved English rock, you know, so uh, <laughs> just even a, even a redneck that loved English rock would have been an outsider, but yeah, you add like, a, you know, someone with some, an ethnic background into that as well, so I mean, I had a, I mean, I knew everybody at school, but I had a smaller, tighter group of friends that were kind of more into the arts and music, um, so I think it, it came from that in terms of like when I first started doing shows, I, I, my taste was um, not mainstream. You know, it was just, and the reason I started doing shows is because I, I was so bored in, in Monterey County um, that I just decided that there's no reason why maybe some nightlife should happen here. <laughs> Dude, I love, wait, hold on. So tell me, were you, had you, tell me about how you decided to create, um, what were you doing before? Were you in like some sort of like, you know, Western. I mean, when when did you feel professionally that you did you started to want to live by your own rules and not the rules that society says you should live by? Have you always been in promotion, or at a certain point you were just like, uh, yeah? I mean, you know, I've always tried to carve my own way. I had a um, I had a, a marketing and uh, uh, kind of a creative services job where I was basically in charge of, of, of promotion for a television station. You know. Um, for many years and including when I first started doing shows that's what I was doing you know um, so I had that kind of marketing background um, and it was a creative job um, so I enjoyed that aspect of it you know um, but uh, yeah it just mostly came to the fact that like for the first three years we're basically uh, just doing like you know a dozen or so weekends a year uh, in in rural spots um, outside of the of the major cities and just getting people to come and commune and gather, uh, out, you know, uh, outside of the cities, because I noticed the, you know, um, after a few, uh, lucky successful ones right out of the gate, 
I noticed that when people actually came to shows outside of the city and made all the effort to come and, and like set up a tent and then come see a show at night, that they were actually a much better audience. Absolutely. Um, they would, Very. They wow. would come and focus. They're all there. They've had the whole car ride to talk about their, their, their whatever's going on in their world, their cats. Their, you know, uh, yeah, they're love, there for the music. They're there to get healed. You know? Yeah, totally. So they get there, and they uh, and they come, and they, by the time they get into the show, they're they're you know they're so ready for a show because they're out in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing else going on to distract them, and they've spent all this energy getting there. So by the time they got there, for the most part, they're they're a very captivated, perfect audience, and everyone's ready to have a true moment together. You know, um, a lot of times cell phones don't work in some of these spots, which is even even better for for actually tuning into the moment. Absolutely, so that's kind of what happened there. And that was the first show was with uh, Will Oldham, Body Prince Billy, who's by no means uh, you know an international pop star, uh, more of like kind of like a U.S. indie version of uh, the '80s uh, post punk stuff that I was into sure. as a kid. You know, kind of outsider, not mainstream, um, but had a, a strong following. And uh, you know, that first weekend of shows. We, we didn't sell tickets or anything. It was all reservation only. And uh, every single person that made a reservation showed up to to come to the show. So it was Im- impressive. <laughs> so uh, after that, um, I had a brief uh, moment of like, oh, wow, this is this could really work. And then, um, of course, you know, over the next three years, I, I learned a lot as to like, okay, who's really going to get people to drive all the way out here in the middle of nowhere and who's not, you know. Um, <laughs> but I always booked booked artists that I loved and respect so even if there was only a third of people that came out which didn't happen that often thankfully um I was still enjoying myself so uh there was always a level of love and respect towards the artist uh regardless of commerce um which was never that big anyways in these small little spots but um it was more about hey wow you've come out here to do this and I'm gonna try and make this the best experience possible for you and everyone that's here, because we're out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, quote unquote, and uh, it's uh, it's now or never to have a to have a divide moment. Oh, it, it's absolutely. I mean, can you just talk about the kind of musician that you gravitate to? I mean, so many of the of the guys who I I feel so thankful to have connected with my <clears throat> peer group um, through. Uh, people like Kevin Calibro and the Royal Potato family, just incredible yeah. roster of people and really amazing dude, women and guys and gals. And, um, but I mean, there's an aesthetic, I mean, to me, it was always like, if you worked for some sort of TV station with corporate backings, you know, you were going to, yeah. it was always about the bottom line. So you were going to be, yep. you know, bringing in, you know, some, some regurgitated act that's playing the same stuff from 40 years ago. And I just wonder about, the difference, like, what is the kind of creative, what are the intangibles that you look for uh, in uh, putting together performances that, because like you said, there's always sort of that leap of faith outside of a big name act, uh, you know, of how are we going to get peeps to come to rural areas? I think it's brilliant, but that there's a, there's, there's a definitely an art to that. I mean, so what is the, the aesthetic that you look for in the musicians that you covet? Uh, well, I think, I mean, it's still pretty much true. I would say that most of it is, you know, 98% of it is, is booked from the record collection, you know? So it's just, it's, it's artists that I enjoy and, 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 and respect. Some are newer, 
so uh, I don't have as much of a history with them, but uh, there's something out there that I'm clinging to. Uh, like, you know, like a Mapache would be a good example of that. Uh, that's a little bit of a different example because Spiritual Pajamas, the label I, I co-run with, uh, with uh, my buddy Toast, um, you know, put out their record. So someone could say, oh, I had incentive for booking the shows with them. But um, No, there's something, there, there's something, there, there's some sort of, un, yeah, there's a tangible thing with those cats. So. Yeah, I, want, I mean, I, before I even knew that I was going to put out their first record, I, I was moment I heard them you know I wanted to book more than more of them and I wanted to help them be heard more because they're just you know it's immediate you feel this connection with uh, with their songs so um, it's a it's a, it's still a, for the most part from the record collection so I, it's kind of a, so it's kind of things that just have some sort of uh, you know that resonate with me in some way I have a large collection of records but um so but uh, it's just about what I'm you know especially this year uh, what I have time to really melt into, you know, after I've hit my son's sleep and, and we got the house that's kind of a, a little bit of playtime for me in the, in the night, it's just a, what, what music am I putting on, you know? Wow. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, that's an interesting, there could be books written on that alone, I think, about like <laughs> what brings your mind to think of whatever it is you're thinking of on whatever particular night, you know, um, that makes that, that song or that album just, you know, come to you on that night. And, and why do you play it? You know, so it's it's tricky, but um, yeah, it's definitely for me. It's it's about artists that are kind of uncompromising and um, and follow their own inner vision and not and not and not let themselves be swayed by, you know, uh, the, the the millions of uh, interfering uh, interests around them, where they can just kind of zone in on their craft and their art. Uh, you know, a good example of that is Chris Robinson, amazing, amazing songwriter, amazing, uh, amazing guy. You know, uh, he, he knows how to how to be a captain of the vessel and, uh, and does it so well and, uh, you know, stays tra- true to his vision. And I think he inspires people around him, uh, you know, um, and I, I think, uh, you know, younger artists would be would be well served to, to look at a model like that. And, and for sustainability and for uh, you know for soul satisfaction of what you're creating, um, so that's kind of the artist, the type of artist I, I like. The artists that kind of don't pussyfoot around with anything other than just their true straight line vision uh, of creating. Do, I mean, can you just for the the lay person out there talk a little bit about these just competing interests that come in to confuse? or to muddy the um, artistic integrity of a potentially very individualistic artist or to, to slow them down. I mean, CR is an incredible entertainer on the bandstand. He, he can drive. I mean, he's just a good, he has, he has great skills on the bandstand. And, and like, I remember uh, Neely Casal told me, he's like, I, I mean, that dude, he, they played 200 plus shows a year and, He's yeah. like the guy never mails in a show. I mean, he, he's on fire every show. So there's, I mean, that's. But he did have the crows, the black crows, that brought him into a uh, prominence, uh, a bigger name. Uh, but I just wonder about in today's world, what it, can you just? What are those interests that, in my mind, um, I mean, they're they're very onerous and they have a lot of. Uh, influence, but they are toxic to people that are trying to stay true to their art. Yeah, you know that's 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 the dodging the uh, walking between the raindrops is, is an art form, and you got to do that a lot in the music business. You know, 
Um, I mean, Chris is, is, a, is, a, is, you know, he is a, he's a beacon for, for that. I mean, he's a, I mean, yeah, of course, with the Black Crows before CRB, I mean, that's uh, just fronting a band like that on a large bandstand like that. It's a lot of fucking work and takes a very special skill. I mean, he's arguably one of the top five front men in rock and roll history. It's like, I mean, you look at him and it's just like, I mean, captivating a, a large audience and, uh, right. you know, leading a band like that, uh, totally. you know, with that kind of energy on stage every night is, that shit's hard, you know, and he's so good at it. And, uh, and the, the way he did it in CRB in a little more refined type of way, but still with the same vigor, you know, and the same soul fire there, um, you could, you could feel it for sure. But I, I think in terms of yeah, distracting people, I think, you know, everyday stuff, just basically like, you know, trying to, trying to like as you get older trying to figure out your path in terms of like how am i going to uh survive and exist and do this and find the right uh the right balance of uh of commerce and art you know how, um, finding your finding the right people to support you for whatever job you have until you can uh somehow make it on your own as a musician is is tricky stuff and there's tons of people that are going to try and steer you wrong um because they just don't have any idea of what it's like to have that that like creative fire in you that, that is like that is everything you know they're not living for that the way you are so it's uh it's tricky it's tricky to uh to deflect those interests which are um not always uh evil and self-serving although often they can be but just more practical even you know like well you should do this so you have this and you have this and you have this and you have this to fall back on and you know that's all good fatherly motherly grandfatherly advice <laughs> but um you know it's like I mean, uh, some of the best art that that exists in this world, both musically and visually, would never have been made if if, the, if those words had been uh, fully taken in and and practiced. Absolutely, you know, uh, uh, there's always a razor's edge, and you got to stand at the edge of it at some point if you want to create something lasting. So, I mean, is it how how have you gone about when you started to do these shows? I mean, how did you? learn to develop how did you develop relationships with because your events extend correct me if i'm wrong but i mean well through northern california i'm not sure about the pacific northwest but it's like how did you uh, over time what did you learn can you talk about the learning curve that you went on and how you develop relationships with club owners one of the issues i think that goes on and, and i'm not really talking about it as it relates to the artist collectives that 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 you promote but i mean if you um you know jazz hall you know jazz clubs and bigger urban centers uh other concert halls the amount of money taken off the top for the top brass is insane compared to the payout for the musicians themselves and i just and i just wonder how you how it's always something that's fascinated me it's very hard I'm obviously not a promoter, but I mean, I, I, I've always been fascinated with, um, at the end of the night, everybody paid 20 bucks to get in. They might've drank some, some, uh, some beers or whatever. Um, they might've bought, you know, the merch is maybe separate, but you know, how does everybody walk away and everyone's a winner and it was a fair, it was a fair fight, so to speak. It wasn't, you know, 90, 10, How, how did, how do you. Can you talk about an experience when you really had to advocate for the musicians because uh, people were just 
kind of greed, obsessed with greed. Well, you know that that happens all the time, and it's a, it's a. I'm an interesting person to ask that question to because, um, you know, um, first of all, buy the merch, people, because that is yeah. The buy the merch, dude. The merch is it, exactly. Gonna, and it will be if you're if you've got good taste in music and you're at the and you're at shows with artists that are are in it for the long run, that merch is just going to go up in value, anyways. It's so true, actually. It, That's a great call. I never thought it. about that. You know, um, if you, if you really really love the artist, buy two of the shirts, wear one and keep one. You know, you won't regret it if you're if you have good taste and you're you're with you're seeing artists that have, uh, you know, longevity and you know who they are. Um, so buy the merch because that's directly their money. In terms of asking that question for me, it's tricky because, um, yes, uh, you know, in terms of uh, of club shows uh, that are owned by clubs, um, it's easier to uh, to change the split around a bit because um, you know those clubs have a full staff that are there every night, which they're paying for and, and paying all the uh, upkeep of the club, which is expensive and such. But my point being, they've got a crew that's already set up. It's kind of like, a, it's not it's not like a, as easy as flipping a switch, but there's already infrastructure fully set up there and ready to go. Those same people were there the night before for whatever artist that was in there. You know, so it's a, it's a crew, it's a professional crew. It's like a basketball team. Absolutely. Like clubs will have different... Uh, eras of, of crews and you know when the club has a great crew and it's just flowing and everything's good everyone's feeling good and and you know an artist can do pretty well in in proper venues if they're with the you know uh but the stuff that i do is a little tricky because like these these rural shows out in the middle of nowhere are super expensive to produce um because there is no like okay now we're gonna like pull the curtain back in this wooden spot there's a PA and lights and a stage and a whole crew ready to go it's more like well we've had to actually truck all that in and bring a crew in to do it um, so it's a little trickier but it's more about the experience that's why I think you know um, you know, we're doing like shows with 150 people 300 people in the middle of the woods uh, that's not a lot of people and you can have a great experience with that um, because of that you know but a ticket price is going to reflect that as well because all this stuff has to come from somewhere and then has to go back to that same place. So there's a lot of overhead with it um, that's involved. But I think people have come to realize that, oh, I'm paying more for the experience. I could pay, you know, 150 bucks to see this band at the Henry Miller Library with 300 people, or I could pay 55 bucks to see them with 8,000 people at the Greek. You know, Absolutely. Um, oh, I love it, yeah. It's, it's, it's up to you, you know, the choice is yours and I'm not trying to tell you which one to go to I know if I love the band which one I'd want to go to you know um, so it's a, it's a, that's a different story for what I do but yeah in terms of, uh, of just a fair shake for the artist um, you know live touring is how they make their living and uh, one thing I've noticed um, with what I do is you know a lot of times these artists are on the road playing like you know uh, spot after spot, major city after major city, and there can be some really inspiring shows in there, of course, but then there can just be the doldrums of touring. And a lot of times, if uh, one of the spots I'm doing the show at gives them a, a unique show in a unique setting and a day off somewhere rurally, because you're going to have to have a day off at some point on tour, I think it's a total refresher for them to come in and be like, oh, wow, okay. We're making enough money on the small tour, the small stop to, to basically perhaps, if we're a big band with the, you know, big expenses, to like cover our daily expenses. But we're getting this amazing show out 
in the middle of nowhere and having a day off in the middle of nowhere out here that is like I think it's just worth more than, than gold for them when they're in the doldrums of a long tour. And I've seen it happen all the time. You know, um, they'll come out the night before and have dinner and just get to enjoy a little small area for a minute, do a show, and then pack up and go. And then we'll get notes from them, you know, quite often that will be like, oh, thank you so much for that show. It was pretty much all downhill after that. Dude, it's so, it's so, dude, I remember Peter Rowan telling me, he's like, He's like the road can eat you alive, and I didn't know what he meant by that, but I I, I do now. I mean, it really is, yeah. and so for them to get into nature, um, it's still in a river. Yeah, you know? I mean, and just like because you know that to me is like, uh, it's beautiful, man. I mean, I, I, like, can you talk about, um, you know, I, I just want to know in Britcovez, you know, in your. A time in your in this early career with folk, yeah, when you really sort of entered the Socratic method of you must know what you don't know. Maybe you were flying blind, but you pulled something off that you really had never done before. But it really it made you a stronger person. It made you a stronger advocate, and 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 actually, you know, it it brought you into a different level of of uh, as a as a promoter. Yeah, I mean, it just the, the whole idea of doing it just became for me like, especially when I had the day job. I'm just like, oh man, now I can, I just can't wait for the next show. And they were like, you know, typically once every one every like six weeks or something on a weekend. Um, and then as as that kind of grew and grew, and then um, basically, I mean, what it is now is it's more of a collective because uh, sure, I may be a curator and kind of the heart of of it, um, but uh, I have so many amazing partnerships with people all over. You know that are that are partners with me on certain at certain locations and certain certain spots. You know, from the people that own the land to the people that own the winery, the people that own the venue. You know, they're all they're all partners. We don't just come in there and like you know like come in there like a UFO and just take over the space. <laughs> right, right, or like right. working with them and yeah. like creating something together. Um, especially in the rural spots. Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, we're doing it together and sure I'm in a position because of uh, my experience now and to be able to buy shows and agents will trust me to place this show in a spot that you know is out in the middle of nowhere and not worry about it and know that I'm going to deliver the experience for them um, and they're not going to get like some call going what the fuck was that you know there was no power blah 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 so there's that element of trust and then it's just about me finding the right people to, to host these spots with me and trusting them so it's really a community that's been built over the 15 years um so uh, i've just been lucky to have, to have carved that out and um and i have my favorite spots and people to work with and uh, those are kind of what we've reduced it to at this point um and just try and do each one and make each one a special experience when we're doing something in the in the woods or in the desert or whatnot um you know i'm the house buyer at the chapel in san francisco so that's a different job um, in terms of I have to um, try and get as much music as I can in there uh, on a yearly basis. And uh, But then I'm also kind of, uh, you know, the old saying, the champ always fights himself. I'm always uh, very particular about what I put in there. Right. You know, um, right. I, I could put in like Thursday night reggae special every Thursday night with some like bottom tier reggae band that's going to sell a bunch of drinks and make the club you know go off for every thursday but that's definitely not what i want i want to be a part of you know that's not what i want to do 
I love reggae. It's high art, but there's it falls off a cliff really fast. My opinion, you know? um, I'm like, no, I did, dude. You gotta, you gotta fill the coffers up so you can bring in the the more aesthetically pleasing acts, you know. Exactly, and then at the chapel, it's like over the you know the eight years I, I was the buyer from day one when it opened. You know, we've we've figured out me and Fred Bards, the general manager there, figured out ways to like bring in much larger artists that would normally play the Fillmore and then offer them three or four nights at the chapel instead. Well, they end up making more money and then having actually more of a communal residency experience in San Francisco, which is the way it was, you know, it's like you look at all these old posters from uh, the 60s and early 70s, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't until I would say mid-70s uh, that it got to be this, the, the one show kind of thing, but it was all like, you know, three nights curated with support, you know, and make it a thing to where you could actually go in, spend three nights with a band and just really get a feel for what this band is at this moment in time, you know. Um, you're just blowing through town on one night. You can have a bad night, and that's just a bummer. But when you're doing three, you know, um, you really it really opens the space up for the band and the audience and the city. You know, so that's kind of what we've been trying to do there is to try and create with the with the larger bands that are you know too big for just one night. Um, do multiple nights there, and let them like just kind of uh, be a house band again. You know, which has been so great to witness and. Um, the fans love it. The ticket prices are double of what they would normally be because they're playing a small a spot that's you know a third the size of their normal spot. But the fans get it and love it and understand, you know. And uh, you know, no one's complaining when they walk out because they've had this experience with this band that hasn't been possible in maybe 15 years, you know. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's a different mindset for the city than it is for the rural stuff. But um, uh, along the way, I also figured out that hey, you know. Um, for the cool, vibey, quote-unquote, break-even show in the woods, uh, I can offer them, like, three nights in the city somewhere where they'll make that bigger money and kind of even it all out. So um, that's kind of how that's come along. Um, and that's, just, you know, being a partner, having a partnership, partnership with the chapel, you know, partnership with the winery in Sonoma, Gunbun, you know, partnership with the landowners in um, Point Reyes, you know, partnership with Pappy and Harriet's. You know, to where, um, you know, it's a, to where we're all doing this together and working as a team. Um, and, and I mean, that's the way it works. That's the only way it can work for me. I mean, I don't have a, an army of people on standby in all these rural spots. You know, there's a couple of people that help me do it. And then a lot of people uh, within the uh, family of the partnership that help us. So it's, uh, it's something that's been cultivated and something that is, uh, is treasured for sure. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it just uh, from my own perspective, the last couple of shows I saw, well, I went to Fernwood to see Grateful Shred a couple nights. That was in February, and then... Oh, yeah, yeah, that was fun. Though Those were my... I mean, th- those are... I, I mean, I can't even express how much I, I love uh, those cats in that band. Uh, but the thing is... Um, like it's fair to say that you before coronavirus even though nobody was getting you know filthy rich which is not the point anyway but the you would say that that you had a groove going think the economy was humming along for for this kind of thing before coronavirus it just felt like there were a ton of shows Uh, the touring circuit did exist um 
am, am I right in saying that? I mean, like you said, there was a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely. I mean, it was it was definitely standing up to be another great year. You know, um, we're a small boutique little uh, production company, so I mean, I still have to like fight every day for for things with these larger corporate companies and also these larger independent quote unquote um, uh, promoters who are really not that independent. Um, that you know, trying to block stuff nonstop in a ridiculous way, uh, which is you know a bit silly. But um, can you, Britt? So can you, without without like mentioning, can you, yeah, can you just like what what are these shows? What are the what are the? I, I just want you to break this down. What is like a, a quote unquote these independent promoters? What are they blocking that normally w- that you've been able to facilitate in? Play, like like at the chapel with with Barnes like what what are they blocking I, I'm I'm this is so irritating to me because it it's completely clogging up on a whole on a much larger level the ability to raise the overall vibration of society what what is what's the pettiness there it's, it's like literally well there's not going to be any vibration raised when someone's losing money and they're like a big company <laughs> so that's what they're trying to like. Which is sad, you know. Yeah, um, because I mean, they're, they're gonna, they're, they're, they're not hurt. They're making millions of. Uh, no, they're, it's greed. It's greed. So, I mean, it's just basically, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's greed, and um, you know, and I understand protecting your interests for sure. Don't get me wrong. I've had to partake in that from time to time too, to where you've got this show that's, you know, not selling as well as you want it to, and it hasn't covered its expenses, and someone uh, adds a show that's, you know, uh, 60 miles away, you know, I get that. That's not cool. You know, it's like let this other show reach its full potential right. before that happens. But blocking something that's three hours away and a drive is definitely gets to me, especially something that's 300 people or whatever, gets to, to me, gets to be a little questionable um, and, and downright silly. But at the same time, you know, um, it is what it is. And I've learned how to navigate it and, and it doesn't always happen. And it's always interesting when it does now, but um, it's uh, it's you know it's a tr- it's a tricky game out there for that you know. And I'm still I'm still independent. I'm not selling out to anybody. So I'm just trying to create these little events that are that are meaningful for people. And uh, you know, by no means some big some big like arm and hammer arm of like a fierce you know cross me and you'll never you'll rue the day vibe you know. But that's definitely out there for other for other promoters you know and. We know who they are. We don't have to say who they are. And there's a lot of great friends I have that work for them, and I understand that. You know, they're music lovers, and they have a great job working for a company that allows them to surround their life with music. But yeah, it's um, you know, it's uh, that's a big business. They could be selling, you know, that at the top they could be selling cars. It doesn't matter to them. You know, it's just the, it's the revenue intake. You know, uh, I can't imagine someone at the top of those companies, you know, uh, at the end of the night, you know. Uh, Stripping down to like nothing but a room and a record and just having the spiritual experience. It's hard <laughs> right, to, right, you know, right. To visualize that. You know, it's probably more of like let me get an early check on my stocks. Absolutely. No, I mean, but this is the this <laughs> is the too, but I'm just saying, like that's a different mentality. So I've learned to, you know, before I used to get really upset about it, but now I've just learned to understand. It's like, well, the bottom line is I'm glad I'm not them. You know, even though they might have five houses or whatever, there's five houses of spiritual bankruptcy out there that oh, they're living in. Jesus. And I'd rather live in a little house in the middle of nowhere that has spiritual fulfillment with a, with a handful of records that move me to tears sometimes. Absolutely. You know? Well, look, Britt, this is why I'm so humbled to have you on, because I know that for people that will listen to this today, 50 years from now when we're gone, I want people to know what it takes to be an independent pro, uh, curator 
of this stuff. And to me, you know, your friends, yeah, they're making getting a paycheck. Uh, they're they're surrounded by music. May not be, you know, great. The point is, they have no creative control. They're taking yeah. directives specifically from the top. It's a bottom line thing. And the idea that you were talking about of having some sort of expanded consciousness based on a, a, a couple of days in the woods, uh, yeah. you know, communally, it, it, th- these these cats don't get it. They're, they're, they're checking their stocks. So what I'm saying is, totally. what is what are the tenants in your, from your point of view for younger cats who feel the same way but feel like there's no other option than what we know is the consolidation of, 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 of the corporations out there? What are – tenacity – what are the things that you would tell younger cats who desperately want to help in this lineage that you're doing right now? What what do they need to have constitutionally? What do they need to develop in themselves over time? What are the intangibles for independent curators of music? Well, that's a great question for for right now in particular because um, for two reasons. A, I've been, um, you know... The fact that I'm, I'm mostly working on, on producing these stream shows, which are shooting and editing and um, posting that way, which is a different thing altogether. But it's also been a year of reflection about trying to get the archives together and, um, and um, you know, round up all the posters. And, and the, you know, we've been sharing those on Instagram. And, just, and so as a, as a result, it's been a nostalgic year uh, because in the past years we've been too busy to be nostalgic. So that's an interesting timing for that question because I look back and I, and I remember all sorts of things. You know, I remember like these moments uh, in the middle of the night by a campfire after a show or I remember, you know, um, uh, a moment on stage or I remember like, you know, uh, seeing someone like come to a lot of the shows for the first time and all sorts of memories have come back, you know. Interesting. Uh, and it's just like, whoa, okay. I mean, and there's been some, there's some in there that are like, oh, yeah, that's the one where I really learned to get in the shorts and had that long walk to the ATM afterwards and learned a lot. And, <laughs> you know, so it's all there uh, for me to look at, right. uh, which I haven't had a chance to do. So, I mean, but the, the only advice I would give is, is to, like, A, find um, the Head Start advice that I didn't know, um, which is so essential now. But yes, to find a community of people to work with and and do these shows in, in unique fun spots and find find a little crew of people um to help you with that in terms of not just your people but the people there at the you know find simpatico people that have the spaces that you can work with and and cultivate that because that's um that's the, the hardest part really is um you know once you're there and you're doing something together to be all in sync and, and that's when something something beautiful can happen you know um so, and that's, you know, that's all boils down to, like, there's money involved in that in that aspect as well, not just vibe, you know. Sure. Um, but you just have to find someone that understands, like, hey, you know, whether we're doing 300 people or even, like, 800 people uh, in the middle of nowhere, it's not a get-rich-fast show, you know. So it's more about, like, paying for the experience and covering through expenses and then, you know, um, of course, making enough to, to, to continue doing what you're doing. But just finding partners that are not trying to do like a hit and run type vibe with you, um, which there have been so many that have over the years come to, to us and been like, Hey, we want to do a big festival where you partner with us. And I see what that is. It's like, Oh, we've got this space that can hold 10,000 people. And I mean, my first thought is like, 
while I already have anxiety with 10,000 people around me, that, uh, <laughs> and I'm at the controls with you, who I right. don't know very well, right. who looks like they're your biggest intention is, yeah, you love music, but you're also just trying to make some money, you know, in a big, fast, you know, wham, bam, hit and run style. So it's just like, eh, not sure I want to even spend that day with you, let alone the six, eight months <laughs> working up to it with you. So it's like, you can kind of weed those out pretty yeah. quickly. Um, but that's also why I've never really done something that large, you know, in the 15K, 20K, because it's just, um, you know, they're great. They can be great. Don't get me wrong, but it's that's just not where I want to. I completely you know. agree. No, I mean, I, I, is it fair to say, like, you look at a band like the Grateful Dead, and a lot of people don't talk about it, but one of the magical things about them is that all five of them were basically coming from completely different uh, parts of the musical spectrum, which made it magical. And, and when you talk about yeah. the, the team, when you talk about put, building a team, it's like-minded people, simpatico, people that are in it for the long haul. They're not, you know, one-and-done kind of cats. Uh, yep. But do, do the, the smaller cat, the, the, the small cadre that you've assembled, do they all bring – is it – I guess what I'm, I'm asking you to talk to, to future promoters is just it's important that they're not that, – that their strengths maybe offset your, your things that you're not as strong in so that it becomes a real team. Like what, what are the – Definitely, there's some of that, but mostly it's um, it's the space. They hold the space, and uh, just making sure that they're going to be uh, a I host do. for you and the event and the artist that is just uh, in line with what you want uh, the vibe of the show to be, which is for, for me relaxed, you know. Um, which is why I don't deal with big numbers because I want a more relaxed. That's not to say we don't have you know people watching the green rooms and backstage and such but i just don't want i want it to be more of like a hang than it is some sort of dude like, totally you know, bro that's uh, the Pentagon that's the way like it's got to dude guys, i need that you know? man i that's the what it's about dude i you know but again the 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 you know the people are checking their stocks it's like i i yeah. uh can you talk about i mean it was very touching i think i would have a very hard time brit right in this moment because i don't want to go somewhere and uh, like the Henry Miller and then and know that there's a lot of protocols in place because I'm a little bit uh, I mean I just want spiritual discharge when I go to shows and I want to be healed I can't uh, I want to be up near the stage and I don't necessarily need to be dancing with anybody but I like I like to let the body dance and there are I mean just because of the restrictions I mean when I saw Los Hermanos Cosmico uh, at uh, pa- at at Big well let's see was it Pappy's and uh, and then also Henry Miller, um, you know I just said uh, boy you know this is is I I it's it's beautiful because all those guys in that band are like some they're just amazing people on top of just like transcendent musicians. Um, what a band! Yeah, what a band! I mean, just, I mean again for me in my own way I said you know I. I I'm going to just support it in the best way I can. I, I, I'm not going to go because I, I feel too restricted. So basically, you know, so I understand, but I mean, can you talk about those shows, how meaningful they were to the guys involved? Because obviously they all love each other, but on top of that, you know, it was a new band and it was also in the middle of a pandemic and they had a chance to to play. So just, just take us through that whole experience, you know? Well, basically what had happened is, um, you know, uh, the library um, 
my good friend Magnus there has had been uh he was uh you know we were all kind of in this kind of like we're not doing anything mode and uh and then I saw that there had been um semi-regional band that had kind of passed through and set up and played you know um so I, I you know immediately uh reached out to Magnus I was like hey what's going on with this and he's like oh yeah that kind of you know there weren't everyone was distanced and there was just a free show and it was great everyone was respectful and so then um you know, because I have a long history there doing the shows there. So um, I was like, well, we should do something, you know, where it's seated and, and distanced. And, and uh, he's like, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. So that's kind of what happened. So then uh, he kind of came up with the number of 50 people, which is, uh, you know, very spacious for that spot. Um, we distanced all the seating uh, compared uh, in relation to who bought tickets, you know. Uh, and it worked out great. It was, uh, was it restrictive? Well, uh, the things that... Uh, it was an experience for everybody, you know, and <laughs> yes. we checked everyone's temperature going in right. and then asked them the line of questions, you know, did an old fashioned, uh, uh, backwards strip search just to make double shirt. No, just kidding. Uh, you know, <laughs> just, uh, everyone came in, we took their temperature, we asked them these COVID related questions and, um, explained to them what the rules were, which were, um, you know, if you're in your seat, uh, next to the person you came with and your distance from people, you can take your mask off and enjoy your beverage or whatever it is, you know. Um, but when you're walking in the, around the venue uh, and um, going to the bathroom or going to buy another beer from the library or going to buy some books from the library, you know, you got to have your mask on. So um, for the most part, everyone got that, and it was pretty casual. There was a, you know, we had a, we allowed some people to dance in the back, um, that was the one thing that well, like had all 50 of them got up to dance and it would have probably been a problem simply because uh, distancing could have been uh, could have been an issue big is, but, yeah um, big issue yeah 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 but everyone understood what it was you know and there was a handful of people that did want to dance and they just kind of went to the back and uh that's the thing about being in the woods you, know, you can go find your own little space and do it so they went off great and uh you know as soon as uh, i realized that we were going to do it i called chris of course first and um he uh had just had a i think a good Mendo camping trip with Farmer Dave and Benji, and then he just kind of came up with the idea for this band, and uh, I was like, "Wow, that sounds great!" And then uh, <laughs> it was going to be acoustic at first, and then um, as I, you know, then Krista had said that he wanted to do some CRB songs, which was the first time he had done them basically since uh, <clears throat> since that last European tour, you know, sure. with the band. Um, definitely, you know, it's the first time since Neil has passed. So I was like, well, that's a big moment now then, and that's exciting because I'm a huge fan of that songbook, you know. Um, so then it was just like, well, maybe that should be, you know, so then he and I were like, well, maybe it could be a little bit bigger of a band. So then the Barry got involved um, and then um, decided that it was going to have a little drums, you know, because um, at first it was going to be acoustic. Um, and then that's how uh, Cofercat got in the mix. No, I love that freaking guy, man. He got... Uh, but then once it all came together, you know, it's very obvious. It's like, oh, okay, you've got, you know, the kind of Neil har high harmonies with Alex, and then you have the Neil shredding with Barry, you know, and then you have all the Beachwood Bros together. It was just a, a beautiful moment. I'm in the band. It's just there couldn't have been a, a more appropriate set of guys to to gather to uh, to resurrect the CRB songbook than those guys all together. And I think when people see the the concert film, which is more than just a concert film, um, in January, they're going to understand. It's like, wow, okay, this is, you know, these, uh, these songs kind of came out of their, uh, you know, their, uh, their hiatus, uh, softly, 
and gently in the woods, but would but couldn't have been couldn't have been uh, with a better group of of, of people to uh, resurrect them than that group of people. And the moment you hear the songs, you're like, oh shit, yeah, this is a you know, if there was a, a Star Wars moment, there was definitely like the Jedi kneel up in the sky smiling <laughs> down on that group of people. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, it's, uh, and those songs that Chris and Neil and Adam, um, you know, uh, you know, and Tony and Jeff later to uh, constructed and composed are, you know, that's a world class songbook. And um, I, I used to tell Neil this all the time. Um, it's like, uh, mark my words, you know, these these are going to go the distance. These songs, so people are going to forever be drawn to these songs, and the and the power of these songs. You have no clue as to what the power of these songs are. Still, even though you're going around the world playing them for people, you still don't really know how how much they're going to grow in legend and how how far-reaching these song, this song catalog, this CRB song catalog, is going to uh, eventually reach. Is is going to blow your mind, um, you know. And that, that's true. Those songs are uh, those songs have even have even begun to hit their full potential, in, in my opinion, in terms of the resonance with people, you know. Well, I mean the the thing that the, the thing about the like you said before Chris deciding to go back to a an old school methodology of you know the bus and the, the road yeah. do, heavy road dog in it and uh, and doing it <laughs> doing it so that they could have a lot of creative control and a lot of bandstand work and and not just be beholden to uh, to the corporate powers i mean i think that that that's part of what made it inspiring for a lot of people and then those songs like you said um a lot of them uh you know i think their residents will just continue to grow i you know i wanted to ask you i i know that you know um i loved i didn't know neil that well i i i really loved circles around the sun a lot um yeah. I freaking loved Neil just sort of always being just whimsical and like open and, you know, not really recognizing how amazingly awesome he was, which was part of yeah. the charm. Yeah, but I, I, guy, definitely. you know, just a really awesome dude. Like no, just any, and obviously, you know, a ton of experience and, you know, never really tooting his own horn. But I, I just wonder if you could step back into, I, I, I could care less about all the, 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 the note that he left and why he did what, yeah. you know, that stuff is irrelevant. I just, I was wondering if you could talk about, um, I did feel in my own way that, um, his heart broke a little bit when, um, when, uh, CR, uh, brought Joel into the band to replace Adam. And, uh, I just wanted well, you to, first there was Pete, you know? So, uh, it was pizza. Person. That's right. <laughs> yep. But I just I, I wanted to ask you personally, like, can you talk about um, because see, you know how how Neil's death affected Chris? At, yeah. How, how did that? Well, happen? I mean, first of all, I think you know for for all of us that love Neil, it, it's not about the note. It's the note he left. It's about the notes he has left. Right. You know, and right. all the music that he has left for everybody is. Uh, is an incredible body of work, and the amount of the amount of traveling he did to to bring those songs to people, you know, that's uh, that's some old school door to door salesman stuff right there. And you know, when the when CRB first started that first California tour, you know, um, I, I did a lot of those shows, and 
when I realized what was going on, I was like, holy shit, this is like the equivalent of like uh, Ronnie and the Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks touring <laughs> like the Canadian circuit, you know, back in the late 50s or 60s. I love it. Just, they're just doing all California, and it's just like three, two or three nights at every spot they're doing. And, uh, you know, and this is Chris Robinson doing this. This is insane. But really, no, he realized, it's like, well, yeah, I'm going to go back down into the trenches with, the, with these venues. But I'm also going to come out of these trenches with a kick-ass band because we're going to actually have earned it by actually going out and playing for people. Um, totally. And that's what he did. It was super impressive that he did it. And the, and the people that he got to be in the band with him, I mean, it's, that's just incredible foresight you could see where that went so i mean that just goes to show you his vision in that and and what he was willing to do to create that vision which is to make them uh to make them a real band by baptism by fire you know uh so that was impressive to watch um and it still boggles my mind you know uh when i hear the first record uh big moon ritual because that's like that's where all those songs were born from that tour you know i saw them all come together um so I had a long relationship with that band and and all the members as well, you know. And just like just like any band, you know, it's um they 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 got to be about year nine or eight, you know. And it's a lot of traveling and it's just a lot of time everyone's spending together, you know. Uh, in terms of Neil, I think you know I, I communicated with Neil quite a bit during that May run with Pete Sears. You know, uh, like after the first couple nights, it's like, hey, how was it? You know, and he's like, he had nothing but extremely positive things to say about Pete and loved playing with him, you know. Um, so he was pretty stoked on Pete playing and being able to play with Pete. But, yeah, I think some of the wind from his sails was was a little out because, you know, he and Adam obviously have this very strong chemistry. But it also became very clear that, you know, uh, a lot of that chemistry was being cultivated in another band as well. Absolutely. You know? So, um, and, 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 so and in fairness, I mean, I, I yeah, that. I mean, I saw, uh, you know, I mean, I love Mac so much, but I mean, he was not uh, in the best headspace either uh, in the CRB. There, there were reasons why things went down. I just, you know, to me, it was like um, I don't need to, to, you know, say the 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 obvious, but I just, uh, you know, I. I, I really hope I remember with Neil I, I, I texted him before see I saw the <laughs> the last uh, those those cool New York shows Baby's Alright and uh, oh yeah and, treat. and uh, that high school in Long Island I'm from Stony Brook so that was so tripped out in Port Washington and I remember like I was like you know play 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 for Coltrane tonight and he's like he's like you don't even listen to Coltrane I said you know it's true I don't obsess about John Coltrane yeah. but I understand the spirit that he played yeah. in and I and I really implore all my my music, musical friends uh to play in the spirit of Neil Casal because like yeah. that to me is what we've been talking about here for the last hour is just is spirit spiritual pajamas spirit it's like yeah. the most intangible unquantifiable thing and if you can break bread and and make a little bit of dough off of it I, that's all I'm searching for, and I feel like at a certain point in our culture, in our heritage, at one time, uh, when the greed factor wasn't so pervasive and high, it really worked pretty well. Musicians were able to get ahead, even able to get ahead a little bit. Um, totally. You know, there's no, there is no rollicking studio scene anymore. There's no, you don't make an album and then sell a million copies and then go on a, a tour and write write it off as a loss. Those days are gone. Yeah. But it's yeah. important that. 
I mean, what are the things you've had time to reflect this year? Obviously, um, what do you? Uh, how do you see things moving? I don't want to say far. I hate jumping into the future because I only want to go in with intentions and no expectations. But everyone's chomping at the bit to say, "Let's get rid of 2020. Let's get to 2021." And I, and I, I asked someone like you, not to temper expectations, but what can we expect in your mind in terms of live communal spiritual music? Uh, you know, starting in this year because people want to bust out of the gates right now, and we're not really at that point yet. Uh, California is a, a perfect example of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's uh, this goes back to to March. You know, when uh, like the the giant UFO in the sky was over, and everyone was trying to figure out what it was and if it's going to be there for a month or two, or right. if it's going to fly away, right, or right, who's right. going to take with it, and who's going to leave. You know, um, you know, I think everyone has a bit more of an understanding of what this is at this point, um, and hopefully, can like sit there and, and you know, financial hardship aside, which is definitely the case for all of us. You know, uh, without a doubt. Oh yeah, um, my God! It's but insane. that aside, just to take a minute to be like, well, you know, this is a year um, that you'll never get back, uh, and is that a that may be not a great thing for your business and your finances, maybe a ca- catastrophic thing for your business and finances, but it is. Uh, in other ways, it could be the year that you never get back. That maybe you might someday wish you could too, because you're at a point in your life where you're probably. Uh, you know, if you're in the middle of your career, you're working hard and you're fairly healthy and you've got, a, you know, these people around you and um, it's, uh, you're never going to have a, a year like this to like totally be forced to drop out from your daily, you know, not that we haven't all been working. I mean, I work every day on, on rescheduling and booking shows. And Believe me, dude, I understand. No, a hundred percent. It's yeah, like, I, I think I'm home now all the time and that's, that's a special thing. And uh, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's little diamonds in every day, and I just try and I try and mine those at this point because otherwise it's a, you know, it's a tossing and turning night of sleep of sleeplessness, just worrying about, you know, how everything's gonna work out in the end when no one really knows. So it's just accepting that has become a big part of the year for me. In terms of going into this next year coming up, uh, I'm just gonna continue to do what I'm doing for the most part, and hopefully there by the fall there'll be able to be some. Uh, I'm a little uh, less worried about the size of the events I do coming back later this year than I would be if I was doing, you know, the 5,000-plus stuff. Um, sure. I don't know uh, how quick people are going to be ready to gather in those large numbers, like in Golden Gate Park or in, you know, or Bonnaroo or at or in Coachella. You know, it's like, are people going to be ready to come back in that big of numbers? Young people between the ages of 15 and 25, probably, because they're fearless and they don't care, and they're just going to come <laughs> and rage and not worry. So um, I would imagine that anything that's going for that large of an audience is going to be booking towards that. Uh, I think people, though, in their 30s to 60s, you know, which is a big part of the music lovers that I cultivate, you know. Um, uh, that's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, gonna, that, that's interesting. It's going to be a little more reserved about going back to such large gatherings. I think they will come to smaller ones, uh, but are they going to, you know, uh, it was already probably harder to get people than that demographic to go to those huge events. So, I mean, are they going to be running back to it now to be elbow and elbow with people and waiting in line for a hot dog with someone stepping on your toes? Maybe not for a while, you know? So, um, 
so yeah, that's a reset, you know, and uh, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I do think, though, by the fall there will be, you know, we're hoping to do a, a, a version of Wachika in October, you know. Oh, um, so, Wachika uh, West? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's, uh, and then I'm hoping to do um, a couple of nights of like a Wachika brand east branded at Bearsville Theater. You know, uh, in oh, that's late awesome. Summer, oh, you know, yeah. so um I mean, I'm still hopeful for these things. If they don't happen, will I be sad and bummed? Uh, for sure, you know, because it'll be like, wow, now that's two years in a row these haven't happened. Uh, but at the same time, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just move forward with finding the, the next uh, potential date for it. But I do feel like the smaller events will, will be coming back sooner than the larger events, um, uh, with or without this vaccine, which is... Um, a different topic, but um, distributing that is going to be, Ugh. we're all going to have a ringside seat for some, some laurel and hardiness. I mean, it, well, I mean, that, do I you, think. do you think that um, <clears throat> just because of the fact that you don't have, you're not beholden to uh, the corporate entities and they, I mean, you'd have to kind of probably create your own sort of, you know, whether, you know, people sign a, a waiver in advance for liability, but I actually feel like the the folk, yeah, rural events are actually kind of uh, you know putting everything, putting all the safety stuff aside. I mean, it, those are going to be a lot easier to get going, like you said, than than anything bigger. I mean, I almost feel like you're in position to to, to cultivate this stuff. Obviously, the big question is, can you get people to come? But I, it yeah. is kind of interesting. I mean, there is no roadmap. I mean, the, yeah. U, the UFO has uh, maybe left, but we're just we're, we're we're just drowning in the chemtrails of it or whatever, and and uh, yeah. and so it is interesting for someone like you who I think I think kind of has invented your own methodology. Now you, I mean, does it feel like you're kind of going back to the drawing board a little bit, or is it just total uncertainty at this point? Uh, there's definitely been going back to the drawing board a bit in terms of like the stuff with the streams and everything. Uh, you know, I used to, uh, now I'm editing and working on producing and, and directing these, uh, short films, you know, which is something I used to do back before, you know, so it's definitely been an interesting, uh, full circle for that skill set has come back. Uh, but I have a great team too, to help document some of these shows, um, with Nick at Stranger Films and uh, Ryan at Paradise Garage Recording. Um, so those guys are handling a lot of uh, the documenting for me um, that I'm kind of playing the executive producer role, fairly hands-on with the editing with Nick um, on the film uh, stuff, especially the Los Hermanos Cosmico, a huge hand in that because it's, uh, like I said, that one's become more of a fever dream concert film than it is just a straight-up you know, watch these amazing guys sing these songs for two hours. Um, Can you talk? I mean, great. Yeah, no. Right, I mean, talk, a talk, little, talk a little bit about that. That that is that coming out in January? That's coming out in January. Uh, we're finishing the rough edits on it, and so yeah. So that's kind of like that's a good uh, bringing a full circle to your question. That's a good uh, example of the reinvention. Uh, you know, and is this going to be some big blockbuster money maker? No. You know, but my hope is that it will make the band some money on merch sales because the band gets all the merch sales you know and uh that'll be great for those guys um but the film is basically it's uh it's uh mostly taken from the second night in big sur so it's only the second show they've ever played so there's a freshness there right um, of course it's chris so remarkably the band's fucking amazing already and uh the songs are already there so it's uh and you know when you got chris out front it's uh you, 
you can't go wrong, basically. So it's uh, it's impressive, um, for sure. Uh, and the and the show is inspired, and you can tell that you know, um, it's uh, they've all worked hard for the songs because they know that's the first time they saw a lot of those songs that Neil and Chris worked on together were being played. You know, um, post Neil, so there was a there was an intensity there that that shines through with love on the performance of the song. So we shot the show. Uh, John Hart from Terrapin came down and recorded the show. Wow. Um, and uh, he recorded all four uh, Los Hermanos Cosmico shows, and we're actually compiling kind of a live album uh, out of all those four recordings, which will be from all the shows. Oh, um, man. So John came down and recorded it, and uh, uh, and then we edited it, and we're like, oh, this is great. It looks great. You know, uh, we could put it out now, um, you know, uh, or we could try to make it a little trippier. So that's kind of what we've done. We've shot like a, I would say it's a, you know, we've shot a bunch of scenes with Farmer Dave and character and a few other characters along the coast here. Oh, that's great. Spots that's up great. And, coast. Yeah. and uh, so it's kind of a, I would say it's a, it's a Jodorowsky meets uh, Twilight Zone meets Seven Seals sort of vibe that we were going after. I'm not saying we've accomplished that. Because no, those are the it's masters, all right. Man. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, the, uh, that's the nod that the hat was going towards terms of the visuals of it so uh it does look good i think you know i wouldn't put it i wouldn't send it to chris for approval if i didn't think it looked good <laughs> you know so it's uh it's coming along and hopefully by the end of the week the the final edit will be done um but it's uh it's gonna i think be something that people can go back and watch over and over again because of the extra footage and and the visuals we've got like a lot of really no it's an, it's absolutely it's of, a kind of like a re- yeah stuff. no it's brilliant got like a lot of killer time lapse stuff of of the area in there as well so it's a I think it's some eye candy in there and the, and as we know the songs are already tasty treats to the ears so we're just trying to make something that people will want to watch over and over again um, I heard I heard from a bird in the sky uh, that um, one of those nights uh, a few of the cats in the band were pretty addled a little bit over the yeah. top and. Uh, Remarkably, the the man Barry Sless just was the the ultimate guy picking up everybody on the side of the road when they were hurt. He was on fire. I mean, he, Barry's he, always on fire. He's always on yeah. fire. But but, but but these cats were. I heard from somewhere that it was they were they did a little too. They were a little bit uh, uh, disheveled, and every time they needed yeah. it. Barry was there with the car on the side of the road, just burning, picking him up, and driving him to the next stop. Man, it was it was beautiful. I think, was beautiful. I think an adult dose of cosmic inspiration can uh, can affect different <laughs> people at different times, you know. But uh, yeah, you know that's uh, that's what happens when uh, the Candyman comes. Um, but uh, it's uh, that was a great night, uh, Pappies. That night you're referring to mm-hmm. a very amazing show, uh, and I think a lot of people that saw a four consider that to be their favorite show. Um, wow. And it wow. was a, it was a special show, but it was also you know the that was the fifth time they played together. So I mean, uh, every show the band gets better and better. Of course, uh, although the first two shows have something very special because they're always like you know the the beginning of it. But um, so the band just got better and better. So you add a little of a a little uh, uh, cosmic ingredient on on the fifth show. You know, um, oh I love it. Oh, I just, this is it. so great, man. Yeah, they man. got you know you know especially uh, you know. CR's a pro. So I, he, was, I mean, the man can handle. I mean, it's alter. just. I mean, wait, so you're talking about that. This was. Do we have a date? Is night five uh, of of uh, their fifth night. What what was the date on that? Uh, that would have been the second Pappy's night. Would have been. Um, hang on, I can look that up. It is. Uh, it would have been. Uh, that would have been September. 
9220. Wow, I gotta, I'm gonna dive for it. Yeah. So, so I just want to be clear. The, the, we didn't want it to end either. We were like, oh no, God, I don't, I, I don't think anybody, I mean, I just, uh, people were, got a little bit out over their skis and Sless was just, just, just picking everybody up. But I mean, the thing is, um, so the, the, the I just want to be, uh, the, the cat from Terrapin, he, he brought a board down or, or, or well, how was the, yeah, he, he, he recorded all the shows. He came to Big Sur and recorded that, those two shows. He recorded the Forrest Knowles private show uh, the Sunday after the Big Big Sur shows. Um, so uh, Forrest Knowles being a you know special note of all of Jerry fans knowing that that oh, was uh, yeah. where where the where the uh, vessel went back to uh, to the mother ship up in the sky. Absolutely, um, dude. So that's a that's a, the recording of that is very special, the backyard sort of vibe, you know. So really casual but great. Uh, set list is in a lot of different order for that show um, and then there were the two shows of Pappies so uh, which uh, were originally going to happen in August but then got rescheduled because of the fires uh, to early September you know dude, um, I totally, what kind of year has this been dude I totally forgot about oh the fire totally. it's just been like one God. thing after another you know Holy just, shit. Uh, but at the same time it's just uh, it's sharpened the skill set of like uh, of, you know just how to pick up the pieces Well, and I think also what you're talking about, you know, I think, you know, the idea of of being able to, you know, setting aside people that have lost everything uh, economically from this, um, you know, the the ability to um, to focus and recalibrate, focus on what is most important if you have if you're lucky enough to have children and you're lucky enough to have your health. I mean, I just put out a book. My sec, my I've had three books, but my second one was about involved the Merry Pranksters. And Ken Kesey always said he goes, "Spirit is the only currency, and health is wealth." And even though we're denied the opportunity to elevate our consciousness through these incredible uh, concerts, um, you know, to step back and 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 sort of recalibrate and know what's most important, if you can do that. Um, I think is important. I think one thing about Neely is just, I mean, he was, he was alone, you know, when things got dark, uh, you know, he didn't either, he didn't want to turn to anybody or he didn't have anyone to turn to. And I, I just, that's all I want to, I, before we wrap up set one here, I just wanted you to give a little bit of inspiration to all the cats that you have been supportive of that you've had on bills that as, as we move into this new year and people are just, maybe they the reality sets in that oh it's going to be another maybe seven eight nine months till we get anything close to how can you just give them a little bit of of spark and inspiration to to not get into i just don't want anyone to hurt themselves and i don't want anyone to check out you know yeah i mean it's a that's a that's a it's a dark time for people and that's a conversation i've had with uh um you know, Jack, who owns the chapel a lot, because that, that's uh, going back to that conversation of like the chapel has a staff, you know, um, that immediately, you know, had to be uh, furloughed because it's a big crew of people that are, that are involved putting on shows every day. And, um, you know, um, early on, I, when I was talking to him about that, I said, well, you know, uh, we got to be careful, be careful of uh, some of those employees because, you know, they live for the music, they're in that job because they love the music and, uh, you know, they live alone or they live as a ro- with roommates in San Francisco and they may not have any family around and, 
and some of them, you know, are probably, you know, have their own demons they're fighting. And uh, this is the kind of shit that breaks people when when they're isolated. Exactly. And uh, they fall back into the darker ways of, uh, of a headspace that, you know, that music saves them from, you know. Um, so that's been a, a big thing this year is trying to trying to reach out to the people that you know and love and just check in with them and make sure they're doing okay, especially if they're, if they're alone um, a lot of the time. I think finally people have gotten figure out a way to like you know go over someone's house outdoors and enjoy a beer with someone outdoors and be safe about it yeah i mean it's Um, weird because i i mean everyone i go over to my friend's house now and like he has to roll me a personal joint you know we can't share a joint right now it's weird (laughs) that's actually not a bad thing no i know it's totally a good thing i mean it's just it's just part of the the times where it's just surreal you know it's surreal yeah yeah Yeah, there's no there's no sharing but you know getting getting back to neil yeah um, you know he was a dear friend and um you know, often uh, he and Chris would go to record stores all over the country. You know, uh, but often for my shows, um, me and Neil and Chris would go record shopping, or whatever, or whatever record store was in these small little towns that we were doing the shows in. The three of us, and uh, that was a, a great experience with him that we always shared. You know, and he would, uh, you know, he would constantly he would call or text mostly, and then like, you got this record, you got this record. You know, it's like, and we would do the same, and that's like, you know, that was a big part of the friendship that. Uh, regardless of the professional stuff, you know, um, with music, that's, that's the thing I really miss the most about him, is having one of my favorite music buddies to talk music with via text messages all over the world, you know, it's, uh, he, you know, he came over to the, to the house in San Francisco one night on a night off at CRB, and we, like, we had like a little wine and music night, and he brought over this um, Charlie Pride record, you know, um, sure. the, the live Charlie Pride record, and he's like, Brett, do you, do you have this record? And I was like, no, I don't have this. He's like, oh, you got, you got, you gotta have this record. <laughs> just, just, just listen to this record, and it's an amazing record. You know, it's, it's Charlie Pride is by far. I knew what he was saying. The moment I listened, like everyone's trying to do what Charlie Pride is effortlessly doing in that genre on that live album. You know, and it's just a, he's got it all. Yet he was an outsider to them because of who he was. Um, and he had to work extra hard to be accepted in that in that world that at that time was there's a lot of bigotry going on you know absolutely um, the early you know so he worked extra hard to kick ass and and make what he did even better and i think that's kind of what everybody has to do right now i just wanted to say also for the record um uh going back to the where it all began for you uh one of the headiest record shops still exists in bakersfield I think it's called like underground records. I, I yeah. freaking. Oh yeah. I mean, I went in there. I had this surreal experience where I, uh, this old school jazz drummer, Colin Bailey, <laughs> who played on cast your fate to the wind with Vince Guaraldi. He, I went to his house, did a inter- Facebook live interview with him. And then he was, I was looking through his records. He's like, Hey, take whatever you want. I'm like, are you kidding me? And so like, it was like this. So I went to, but this was the coolest part. I went to go see my brother in Bakersfield with this, I mean, three dozen records, very high-end yeah. jazz records. I walk in there, I put it on the table, and it's freaking bait. You know, it's Bakersfield, whatever, you know? And the guy's, yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy's digging through it, and he's like, how much you want for this? I'm like, I don't know, 300? He's like, yeah, you got it. I mean, it was so – because, you know, in Tucson, they lowball you. I didn't sell the whole record collection, but, I mean, I needed the money. You know, but it was yeah, like the yeah. point is that – the point is that he, he was like – he knew what he was talking about. and the And it's just full of, like – 
the headiest psychedelic funk weird that's shit. That's a great record store. I go there all the time when I'm there uh, visiting the family, and it's. Uh, oh. I got a I got a crazy story about the record store. If you want to hear it, oh, I'd love to. Yeah, uh, let's do it. So okay, so that record store is a gym for sure, and I get. I mean, last time I was there, I picked up a bunch of obscure Sun Ra records. I'm like, oh, okay, this is. You know, records to me are kind of like they find you. They do. You know, you no, 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 no doubt. No doubt. Or whatever, but they find you. And where they decide to find you, to me, is an infinitely interesting uh, game. You know, I'm like, okay, where is this record going to someday find me? And so it's always interesting to note, like, oh, found me here, of course, you know. That shop, um, before it was underground records, which is amazing, the guy keeps doing such a great job with it, especially for Bakersfield. Oh, my, it's unbelievable. It's a world-class record store anywhere, let alone Bakersfield. Ridiculous. But before it was that, it was a record store called Andy Noise Records in like the 90s in Bakersfield, you know, and like, <clears throat> I think it must have been like 90, late 90s when I moved up to Northern California um, from Bakersfield. Uh, of course, a girlfriend at the time, we're just moving to, you know, getting all the money we can together to do this big move out of Bakersfield, because if you don't leave Bakersfield, you'll be stuck there forever, you know, so just basically gathering all the nuts realizing, okay, I still need some more money to do this big move because I don't want to get there and be worried about, you know, running out of money the first month. So I took a stack of records from the 80s post-punk era of my collecting that I used to, I used to, from Bakersfield, I used to drive to Aaron's Records in Los Angeles and Middle Earth Records in Downey to buy all these UK imports like the day they came out. <laughs> Always a hardcore music. <laughs> Had all these records. It's like, okay, we're moving to this small place. Uh, in Northern California, I got to get rid of some of these records. I sold like a lot of those records, so I just had some extra money, and I knew I didn't have the space for it. Of course, I wish I didn't do that, but I mean that was a practical. No, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, come on, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Years later, Andy Noise closed, uh, but this guy bought that store and he resurfaced and reopened it years later as underground music. Man, ten years, twelve years later. I go into that store, I'm like, oh, it's resurfaced. And I see, it's like, oh, this is a great store. You know, I'm digging through there, and what do I find? Some of my records. No way. I bought those motherfuckers back. You know, I'm just like, all right, that was just storage. You know, not all of them, but some of them. <laughs> and they were mine. There's no way anyone else had them. I like, love it, European dude. That's, record label dude. numbered shit, you know. Uh, so I'm like, whoa, that's a time capsule. They just gave it back to me. I earned, I earned these records back, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Britt, let's let's do part set two in the new year. Uh, we'll keep this keep the momentum going, man. It was great to connect with you, brother, and 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 continued success. And just keep me in the loop when uh, some of this stuff drops. I'll promote it out. Will do. Back at you. Have a have a great new year. And uh, yeah, let's check in early next year. I'll have more info on uh, on a lot of these streams too. Absolutely, brother. Be good. Happy New okay. Year to your, you and your family, brother. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care, man. Peace. Oh, tremendous hang today all the way around uh, it's great to connect with uh, someone who's looking to cultivate and uh, curate uh, people that we at least in my musical community respect and love and want to see thrive and and you know change the world that's it for the jake feinberg show uh this might be the last interview of 2020 uh, it's been a remarkable year. Hundreds of interviews. And a big thanks to Jim Parisi, 
uh, for giving me the opportunity. I feel humbled in this time to still have the microphone and be able to uh, create content that is going to inspire people when we get out of this um, to be themselves. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later.